Well, I thought this time we'd uh, have a look at the, the records of the Transfiguration and to start off uh, observing what I, I'm sure you will have noticed that in the three records of the Transfiguration that we've got in Matthew, Mark and Luke immediately preceding the record of the Transfiguration there is always this comment that Jesus has just said that there are some standing here who shall not taste of death until they see um, the Son of God or the Son of Man uh, coming in, in his kingdom. And then they go on and see the, the vision of the transfiguration. And I, I think it was a vision, in Matthew's record, tell the vision to no man, he says, as they came down from the mountain. Now, what's the connection then between the fact, he says, some of you are standing here who will not taste of death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, I think it's fair enough to reason then that the, the transfiguration was a vision of, of the kingdom. But before we go on to think about that, let's just notice uh, here in, in Mark 9, and we're going to be looking at all three of the, uh, the, the Gospels, but here in Mark 9 verse 1, there are some standing here which are not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. But Matthew puts it differently, Matthew 16 verse 28, there are some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The Son of Man coming in Matthew 16:28, Mark 9 verse 1, the kingdom of God coming. So I would suggest that the kingdom of God is a title here for the Lord Jesus. What did he actually say? Well, putting the, the two records together, I assume he said something like this. There are some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man, the Kingdom of God, coming. Or maybe, till they see the Son of Man, uh, that is the Kingdom of God, uh, coming with, with power. And so, the Son of Man and the Kingdom of God are parallel, and from that I suggest that the Kingdom of God is a title, sometimes, for the Lord Jesus. I think you see this most clearly in another passage where he says the kingdom of God is amongst you. You're looking here, you're looking there for Messiah, but look here, the kingdom of God is amongst you. Uh, I think within you is a poor translation. He's using the kingdom of God as a title for himself, for Messiah. So the king of the kingdom is put for the kingdom of God, or the other way around actually, the kingdom of God is put for the king of its kingdom. So there is a direct relationship between Jesus as a person and and the kingdom. In other words, he in his personality was and is the very essence of all that his kingdom is going to be. And I think this is why, uh, going on in, in Luke 17, which is the passage that talks about the kingdom of God is, is amongst you, I think that's why he refers to, him, to himself uh, as the kingdom of God, and then he goes straight on to, to say that the days of his return will be the days of the Son of Man. And yet he also says in that context how that after his death men will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. So the days of the Son of Man is a phrase that refers both to his mortal life and to his kingdom, or the time of his kingdom's coming. Why I'm saying this is because Jesus as he was, as he walked around Galilee, then, was the essence of the future kingdom, as it will be. The Jesus who loved little children, 
the Jesus who stopped to, to talk to, to sick, sick women, sick people, the Jesus who very clearly had a, 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 a special soft spot for the mentally disturbed, all the, the demon miracles, etc. This is the same Jesus who will come again. The Lord Jesus is the same yesterday as he was in his ministry today in our lives and forever in his kingdom. So there is not going to be a fundamental difference in the Jesus whom we will meet at the day of judgment and the Jesus whom we meet in the Gospels and the Jesus who I hope we know today through his activity, his characteristics that he, he shows and that activity in, his li in our lives today. Jesus the same yesterday, today and forever. And that incidentally I, I think is an allusion to the... Uh, the, the Yahweh name, but that in that sense God also does not change. He who is, is he who was, and he who ever shall be. Why I say that is because there can be the idea that the kingdom and our relationship to the Lord Jesus then is some big unknown, that we don't know anything about it. And maybe physically we don't know how we shall spend eternity, but what we do know is that we shall forever be with the Lord. And the Lord Jesus, we can know who and how he was and is. And insofar as we perceive his character, we perceive something of what the kingdom will eternally be like. Because the, uh, the, the view of God's kingdom that says, you know, it's going to be great, there's going to be uh, corn growing on the top of the mountains, someone's going to have to go and harvest that, presumably, um, it won't be easy. Uh, it would be quite a back-breaking work to, to harvest all that. Uh, the animals are going to play nicely with each other, and little child to lead them, etc. That is all true and all well and good. But as a, a motivator to us, I think it only goes so far. The essence of eternity is not anything physical. The essence of eternity is being with Him. And this is where it all comes down to whether in this life we can manage to, to develop by God's grace a, an aptitude for the things of the Spirit so that where and how all this is going to be is in one sense irrelevant. The essence is that we want to be with him, him who was and is as he was in the Gospels and as he is now, uh, and we want to be like him. So just to start off with, with that, because having said this, that he's going to... Uh, uh, sorry, that some of those people standing there would not taste of death until they have seen the kingdom. What we're now going to see in this uh, incident of, of the transfiguration is the kingdom, in essence. Because in chapter 9 uh, of Mark here, verse, verse 2, we simply read that he was transfigured before them. And this is this Greek word metamorpho. Uh, metamorphosis, of course, comes from that, that word. So then, we're seeing the great change when we are changed because how he was and his uh, change his path to glory as it were is our pattern but I'd like to just uh, point out the what I think is the another immediate context of this whole incident that comes out more clearly in, in Matthew's record uh, and it's centered around the fact that the climax of the vision is the voice of God that says, This is my beloved Son, hear him. In Matthew 16, verse 16, this is just uh, before this incident of the uh, transfiguration. 
Peter's made the declaration of a truth, you are the son of God. And he's commended for having said uh, to, to Jesus that I know that you are the son of God. And although he knew that as a, if you like, a theological statement, maybe a bit more than that, he clearly did not really perceive what it was all about. And so I think what Jesus is trying to teach him through the uh, transfiguration is that I am God's son. And so when the voice of God comes to Peter saying, this is my beloved son, it's as if he's saying, you know, Peter, you know that Jesus is the son of God. Okay, he really is. And hear him. And as we're going to see, it's not altogether clear that Peter really did hear Jesus at this time as he ought to have done. So then Peter's being led up to a higher level. He understands Jesus as the Son of God. He said that in Matthew 16. And yet he's now being shown in, in the Transfiguration in Matthew 17 that really what you know in theory is gloriously true. And there's a, a verse in First John 5:13, which... I think it's relevant to this. John says, I'm writing this to those of you who believe on the name of the Son of God, that you might believe on the name of the Son of God. As if there's at least two levels here, if not more. You believe on the name of the Son of God, and in the same way as all of us would say, Jesus, yep, Son of God. And yet he says, I'm writing this to those of you who do believe on the Son of God, that you might believe on the Son of God. And so Sunday School Christianity, or the principles that we learnt uh, when we first came to baptism, that Jesus is the Son of God, these things have to take on a pretty radical meaning in our lives. Because if he really is the Son of God, then as the voice of God says here in the Transfiguration, then hear him. And we can quite painlessly say, Jesus is the Son of God, he is not God the Son, etc., and yet not really hear him as we should. So, in Matthew 17, 5 there, this is my beloved son, hear him. And then verse 6, Matthew 17, and when the disciples heard, that is, they heard the voice, hear him, and they heard, they fell on their face, and were sore afraid. And Jesus says to them, verse 7, arise and be not afraid. So it seems to me that they fell on the ground dead as it were from fear. The fear that paralyzes active response to, to the hearing of God's Son. And I, I think that's why there's a, a rather sort of a negative connotation, I think, in, in the fact that in, uh, in Mark 9, verse 6, in Mark's record of the Transfiguration, it's recorded that Peter and the others, they knew not what to say. They knew not, or Peter knew not what to say. Hear him, the voice said. And Peter falls down, fearful, sort of afraid, and knew not what to say. Those three words, the Greek words that are used there, knew not what to say, they occur in one other place, also, uh, sorry, uh, in Luke 22, verse 60. This is when, in that miserable record of Peter's denials, he says, I know not what you say. You are with Jesus. Aren't you one of his people? I don't know what you are saying. I know not what to say. And it was the same with the transfiguration. He didn't know what to say. 
Now, maybe that's over-interpretation, but I don't think it's uh, just chance that those words occur together, those three words, it, only in those two places. So, it could be that really this uh, not knowing what to say, this fear, this sore afraid, this falling down, as it were, dead, was kind of read in, in an, is to be read in a negative sort of way, as if it was tantamount really to denying the Lord. Although God's glory still graciously envelops him even after that. And of course uh, Luke adds the, the detail that they were talking about the imminent death of Jesus. Moses and Elijah spoke to him of his decease, or the Greek word exodus, the exodus which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. That's uh, Luke 9 verse 31. That's what they were talking about, and Peter sort of cut off from that, that message and didn't know what to say. And of course that can be the same with us. Why is it when we read the records of the crucifixion perhaps that we find it difficult to, to really hear what's going on? We maybe make an excuse that oh, it's, it's too emotional for me, uh, etc. But really that is the, what uh, Hebrews calls the voice of the cross, the word which is the cross, the, the voice that comes out of the cross to each of us. And we can be like Peter and sort of cut off from that. And that's, I think, what is going on here at the Transfiguration when they're sort of afraid and they're told not to be afraid and uh, they fell on their faces and, in that sense, did not really hear as they should have done. Now, we're told that they were sore afraid. It's still in uh, Mark here, Mark 9, verse 6. That uh, Greek phrase occurs only one other place in the New Testament, and it's in Hebrews 12, verse 21, in the context of uh, Sinai, where we're told that it was a very terrible sight, so that even Moses said, I exceedingly fear, I am sore afraid. Same words. And of course the whole incident of the Transfiguration is very similar to what went on at, at Sinai. There's a, a meeting with God on a high mountain, the voice of God, glory, the presentation of, of God's Son, as it were, um, is equivalent to how God presented his word to Israel. And of course Israel feared. They did not want to hear that voice. Remember they say to uh, to, to, to God basically look we don't want to hear you speaking direct give us a mediator can't Moses go and listen to you and can't he just relay to us what, what you have to say to us and so I, I think the disciples in their fear are very similar to Israel at Sinai so then Peter uh, hears this voice and yet in a sense he, he doesn't hear well I think when, when he's told and the voice says hear him this is uh, back in Matthew 17 verse 5 I think this was really alluding to the uh, I think well known passage to them in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15 where in prophecy of the Messiah uh, Deuteronomy 18 verse 15 God told Israel that he would raise up a prophet from the midst of thee of thy brethren like uh, this is God talking through Moses like unto me, like unto Moses unto him you shall hearken hear him as if when God says hear him 
he's saying, look, this is the prophet like under Moses. Hear him. But as I say, I, I'm not sure that Peter really got it right then. He was paralyzed by fear to the point that he didn't really hear. And he knows not what to say, knows not how to respond. In the same way as he says, I, I don't know what you say, when he denied the Lord. Interestingly, when Peter stands up and starts preaching after his reconversion, he quotes Deuteronomy 18 verse 15 at some length. And you may like to have a look over at Acts 3 verse 22, Acts 3 verse 22, where Peter preaches Jesus and the word of God to the people and he encourages them to hear and then he says, Acts 3.22, For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me, him shall you hear. And it shall come to pass, Peter goes on to quote, that every soul that will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. So he quotes that. And yet he actually was the one who had that verse quoted to him, and it seems to me that he did not really hear it as he should have done. And this fits into a, a general theme, I think, with Peter in his early preaching, that he realised that he had sinned, had not heard the voice of God in Jesus, and really deserved condemnation, and yet he had been forgiven. And it makes an interesting study to go through his speeches in Acts 2 and Acts 3 and see all the connections back to his denials of Jesus, little words that are used, um, allusions to the, uh, the, the incident there and so he's asking his audience to hear Jesus on the risk of condemnation when he was the one who had not really heard Jesus as he should have done he does the same really in his letters when he appeals to the false teachers and he says there are false teachers amongst uh, the new Israel as there were amongst the old Israel and you know what they even deny the Lord who bought them as if denying the Lord Jesus, that's just the absolute worst that you can do. And of course it was Peter who had denied the Lord who bought him, as everybody knew. And so why was it that Peter was the most successful preacher, I think, of all time, in a sense more successful even than Paul? You know, I mean, he had something in him that could make thousands of people Thousands of people say, yes, you're right, this is true, I repent and I want to be baptised right now, this minute. Now, there was something special in Peter's message. There was some credibility in it, an unusual credibility, an unusual persuasiveness. And, you know, I'm sure as a barely literate fisherman, he, he did not argue with, with uh, great finesse, but there was something in him and in his style that persuaded people of the message and of the need urgently to repent. And thinking about it, it's obvious. There he was, standing up only a stone's throw from the place where he had denied Jesus. Uh, and there was, what, a couple of months, six weeks previous that he'd done that. The whole of Jerusalem knew the story, plus, I am sure, with all kinds of exaggerations. And, oh, this is that Peter guy. This is Peter. And he touched their hearts. Now, in our witness, because if we love the Lord, we witness to him, and we urgently want to be successful, not just witnessing for the sake of it, but we want to bring him glory, and we want to bring men and women to him. In our witness, what is most powerful 
it's not the kind of personal testimony that drones on and on and on, but a humble recognition of our own failure. All this standing up telling people, everyone else is wrong, they got this bit of theology wrong, that wrong, this wrong, that and the other, and I'm going to put you right and I'm going to show you the truth. You know, that, that doesn't convert anyone. Or if it does appear to, I doubt if it's the conversion that God is looking for. What converts people really to Jesus? To real repentance? Because baptism is not a, a sign that you accept a theology. It is a repentance and an acceptance of the Lord Jesus as a person, as the master of your life. That will only have credibility. That message will only have credibility if the person giving the message is clearly someone who has gone through it, who has recognized their sinfulness under condemnation, and yet has experienced God's grace and God's forgiveness, and is able on that basis to persuade people. Now, Peter really should be and is our pattern. So that's the significance, I think, in the voice that comes telling Peter, hear him. And Peter, as I'm arguing, doesn't really hear him, as he should. Uh, and the hear him is alluding to Deuteronomy 18.15. The prophet like unto Moses, unto him you shall hearken, and if you do not hearken unto him, you shall be condemned. And Peter goes and quotes that. And people line up to be baptized because of it. So then, this transfiguration that uh, that happens, this, this change. Well, it didn't happen uh, immediately. In, <clears throat> in Matthew and Mark, it just says Jesus was transfigured, like it happened just in a moment. But Luke adds a detail, Luke 9, verse 29, that as he prayed, his face changed. As he prayed, his face changed. Now, I know... We might be a little bit tired of seeing this uh, incident um, reflected in, in art, in, in paintings of Jesus with the long flowing blonde Scandinavian hair and uh, very clear skin and uh, very uh, beautiful wide eyes kind of thing looking up at the heavenly light. Um, but all the same, putting those pictures which I personally find a bit off-putting, putting them just to one side, Let's remember that, as uh, the old Alan Hayward put it to me many years ago now, he was the man with the face of God. He was God's son. He didn't have a father. He looked like Mary. But, and I know we're at the limits really of our understanding here of the nature of the Lord Jesus, but he was God's son also. He was the man with the face of God, as, as Alan Hayward put it. And I, I find that profound thought. Well, it's as if we have, a, in Luke 9.29 there, a, a snapshot. Well, let's say a, a ten-second uh, video clip, let's put it that way, that as he prayed, his face changed. And I think it's that change on his face which Matthew and Mark talk about when they just say, and he was transfigured. But it was a change. Can you imagine the Son of God praying to his Father and his face starts to change? And that change is 
strangely enough, this profound picture that we have in that uh, ten minute, uh, ten, uh, ten second video clip, as it were, uh, this is an, an image that is picked up and applied to us. Paul's always alluding back to the Gospels, always. And I think in Romans 12 verse 20, he has the transfiguration in mind. Uh, Romans 12 20 sorry, Romans 12.2 don't be conformed to this world but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind transformed there this is the same word there in Matthew 17 verse verse 2 about uh, transfiguration and he says there don't be conformed to this world but AV says, but be ye transformed. Why doesn't he just say, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed? Why does he add the word you? It's kind of redundant, it might appear. Don't be conformed to the world, but be you transformed. It's as if he's saying, transformed, metamorphosis, Jesus, transfiguration, remember, but you be transformed by the renewing of your mind as if that gradual change that came over the Lord Jesus then is to be reflected in us in our transformation and again I I think Paul has something of the transfiguration in mind in uh, 2 Corinthians 3 where he talks about us beholding the glory of the Lord as if we're looking at it in a mirror with unveiled face, 2 Corinthians 3, uh, 18, we are the with unveiled face, behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image, from glory to glory, even as by the Lord the Spirit. I think what he's saying there is that insofar as you look at the glory of the Lord, in the end it starts to rub off onto your face. Exactly, of course, has happened with Moses uh, when he was in the presence of the angel. And, of course, that's the, uh, the context there in 2 Corinthians 3. <clears throat> he's clearly alluding to uh, Moses' experience. But he's saying that now we look at the Lord Jesus, at his glory. What does that mean? Well, glory at times uh, is associated with uh, bright lights and big clouds and stuff. But the essential glory of God is what's declared in Exodus 34 when... Moses wants to see God's face and God says no and so Moses says so so then show me your glory and an angel passes in front of Moses and outlines the characteristics of God Yahweh a God full of grace and mercy and truth and justice visiting uh, the sin the results of sin and judgment for sin upon people uh, etc all the characteristics of God are reeled off there and that is the declaration of God's glory. So insofar as we meditate upon Jesus, upon the beauty of his character, upon who he really was, about how he, the man with the face of God, really did reflect who God essentially is and was and shall ever be, the more we reflect upon that, it rubs off on us. If we take nothing else out of this study let it be just this one thing you and I need to make more time to reflect upon Jesus to look at the Lord, the Lord of glory so that his glory might rub off upon us 
This is not the same as reading the Bible daily according to some plan or whatever because we feel that, well, that sounds my conscience. This is not the same as going to the meeting. This is not the same as being involved in uh, ecclesial or church business or whatever, organizing this, running here, running there. This is a totally different thing. This is knowing him. Having this personal relationship with him, this reflection upon him that leads to him being reflected on us. This is the essence of Christianity. This is what being in Christ and following him in its barest essence is all about. And that lovely 10 second video clip of the Son of God praying and his face changing, that, Paul is saying, is our pattern. And we always feel that we shouldn't be there in Luke 9, uh, 29, looking at the face of Jesus changing uh, as he prays to, to God. feel like this is a private family affair. What, what am I doing here in someone else's, uh, someone else's private uh, family relationship between a father and son? And yet we are taken there by this record. And yet, as I said, this... Uh, vision that he that we're given here is seeing the kingdom of God because it's how Jesus will be in the kingdom and so when we're told that uh, his, his clothes also were shining exceeding white as snow this is kingdom language Revelation 1 16 uh, Jesus and the kingdom is pictured as, as having a face which is shining as, as the sun um, the, the white clothing um, this is all the kingdom sort of imagery and yet Colossians 3 verse 4 says that then when Jesus comes back then shall you also appear with him in glory well that's, a, that's surely a transfiguration illusion because we read that Moses and Elijah appeared with him in his glory and you are also going to appear with him in glory, Paul says. You will be like Moses and Elijah were in the vision, talking with Jesus in glory. We, Revelation 3 verse 4, we shall then walk with him in white. Revelation 19 verse 8, we shall be arrayed in exceeding white clothing. Then, Matthew 13:43 shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father very similar ideas to what happened there at the transfiguration Daniel 12 verse 3 then those who turn many to righteousness shall shine so this is a kingdom vision and the the clothing and the whiteness etc is all very much of, of the kingdom and yet what were they talking about? They were talking, Luke 9.31, about his exodus, about his upcoming death. So what is this? A vision of the kingdom? Or them being, as it were, in the kingdom? Or was it Moses and Elijah trying to encourage Jesus that, come on, come on, you've got to go there and die in Jerusalem. Go on, go for it, do it. I think, maybe, we are intended to get the, the picture that in the kingdom the dimension of time that we now know just will be no more 
That's why, yes, this is a vision of the kingdom of Jesus with Moses and Elijah talking in the kingdom in glory. And yet, it's also relevant to their time dimension as they then knew it, that Jesus had not yet died. And Moses and Elijah were, as it were, encouraging him about his exodus that he was to accomplish. Now, of course, this would have been incredibly encouraging to the Lord Jesus because Moses and Elijah were, were dead and yet he sees them there as if they've been resurrected. And he sees them there with him in glory. It's as if to say that, well, this is all going to happen because you, Jesus, will die and will resurrect. And therefore Moses and Elijah one day shall be resurrected. And so he's being encouraged, I think, that the kingdom surely would come. And the resurrection from the dead of those like Moses and Elijah was going to happen because he was going to succeed in his mission. So then, this is the essence of the kingdom. Being in glory, talking with, with God's people. And yet, that starts to happen now because we are to be transformed here and now. And yet, time and again, we come back to the fact that Peter and the, the others were there, really not appreciating this, really far away in understanding. So far away, tragically far away, it seems. And of course, the way he comes down from the mountain to be met, really, by the disciples' lack of faith. You know, why couldn't we do a miracle? There's some... Uh, sick people there who haven't been cured and they want to be cured and, oh, you know... Um, back to reality just like faithless Israel at the bottom of Mount Sinai as Moses comes, comes back down the mountain just to conclude a, a couple of things in passing uh, Mark 9 verse 7 when the voice says this is my beloved son that is the same words in the Septuagint of Genesis 22 verse 1 where God recognizes that Isaac is your son, Abraham's son your only son, whom you love. Isaac, your son, your beloved son. And that's how it's put in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the voice from heaven uses those very words, really, beloved son. This is my beloved son. Really encouraging us to see that Isaac really as a type of, of the Lord Jesus, and Abraham really as a type of, of a loving father. Final point from Luke's, Luke's record, Luke 9 verse 32. I don't really like making points that, defend, uh, that uh, depend on a, a nuance of, uh, of translation, but uh, I would draw it to your attention, the RV margin on Luke 9 32, which seems to me is, uh, I think, a fair rendering of, of the, uh, the original. Luke 9 verse 32. The AV says, and most, I think, English versions follow this, that Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were awake, they saw his glory. The LV margin, and I, as I say, I think it's correct here, uh, in, in terms of the, the original. Peter and they that were with him, having remained awake, sorry, uh, they, they were heavy with sleep, but having remained awake, they saw his glory. 
their eyes were heavy with sleep, but having remained awake, they saw his glory. And uh, chronologically, that kind of fits in with what Matthew's record and Mark's record seem to say, that um, they did see his glory. They were very fearful, but they saw his glory. So having remained awake when their eyes were heavy, they saw his glory. You probably see where I'm going with this thought. In Gethsemane, same disciples, again their eyes were heavy with sleep, and they did not remain awake. And I think also in Gethsemane there was also some sort of transfiguration. Jesus again is praying. And why I, uh, I, I suggest that there was also some vision of glory, or some bright light, or something special on the face of Jesus, is that when they come to arrest Jesus, uh, and uh, he basically says, I am he, they fall to the ground. Why did they fall to the ground? Those guys that had come to arrest Jesus, why did they fall to the ground? There was some glory shining off his face, it seems to me. So, what happened there, the transfiguration, I think also happened there in the garden. But then the disciples fell asleep at the critical moment, because the record says their eyes were heavy. Here, Luke 9.32, same situation, but R.V. Margin, the Greek, I think, having remained awake, because they remained awake, they saw his glory. Now, our lives repeat, and you can have a situation in your life where you're tested, and you come through, maybe with flying colours, and you maybe do act as you should do, but then the situation is repeated, it can be years later, in its essence, and you fail. Of course it can be the other way around, you can have one situation, you fail in it, similar situation arises the next day, the next week, ten years down the road, uh, and, and you, you learn your lesson. Now God, like the good teacher, teaches us, I think, by repetition. If we're going to learn anything, there is always an element of exercise, there's always an element of repetition. I know it's unpopular in um, educational circles at the moment, or hands-on learning and all this kind of stuff, but in the end, just how we learn anything from childhood, from babyhood, is by repetition of experience in, in its you know, simplest sort of form. And so, analyse your life. You know, unexamined life isn't worth living, uh, somebody said. And that's really how it is. Analyse your life and see how things are repeating. That's why I think for all of us, there is a sense of deja vu. I do remember one Bible school in, uh, in Poltava, yes, in Poltava in, uh, in Ukraine, just chatting, a whole bunch of us chatting there after a meal. And uh, the situation uh, came up, something repeated, and I said, uh, how many of us have a sense of deja vu in our lives? I don't know, sitting around this big table, there must have been ten people or so, and all of us came out with this, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, so many things have repeated in my life. I was in this situation and I thought, wow, this is deja vu. I've been here before. And it's really so. Why? Because our lives are in God's hands. Man, woman, 
Man is not alone. God is active in our lives, and although it might seem that cotton wool clouds sort of drift across the sky at the same old scene, God is active in our lives, very active, and he's seeking to teach us. And so he does work according to a, a, a kind of a pattern, a, a teaching plan, uniquely designed, of course, for each one of us. And we don't, of course, see the plan, this side of the kingdom anyway. But we perceive that there is a plan, that there is some kind of pattern here. That's why there can be very strange repetitions within our lives, and also uh, between the lives of people, and also between our lives and the lives of people we read of in the Bible. Well, that's, uh, that's another issue. My point is that things repeat, and we are to perceive that and to learn from it. Because here, you can't help but notice the similarity between what happened here, the Transfiguration, and their later failure in Gethsemane. And so, we come to the cross of Jesus. And there is a voice that comes out of that. And it's saying, hear him. This is my beloved son, whom you think you know, and you think you know it all, that he's, he's the son of God. But look, this is my beloved son. Hear him.